all futurists are propagandists of a certain sort. So if I'm going to be a futurist, I'm going to propagandize the world of peace and love and you know egalitarian sensibility that we're moving into, not a long stock market boom of infinite wealth for venture capitalists. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. Right now, the time is 2018, and we are in the birth pangs of a planetary renaissance, a transitional era as we move from tribal conflict writ large as the clash of titans between nation states and multinational corporations to what we can only hope is a more just and egalitarian world in which the majority of human beings have a political and economic voice and are empowered to participate intellectually and creatively in the social imagination and construction of a better world. What stands in between us and this menu of desirable futures? One of the biggest obstacles to world peace, if you want to talk about it in that way, is our inability to recognize one another as human beings. Louis C.K. has a great stand-up skit about this, about how the normal compassion and empathy that he would give to another human being he meets on the sidewalk becomes impossible as soon as he and this other person are enshrouded in the metal of their automobiles and meeting each other on the highway. Road rage is an acute example of the ways that our technological surround create a kind of distributed environmental agency that constrains our decision-making, removes us from our evolutionary context of rich, multi-channel communication with one another, and pits us against one another in a technologically augmented fight to the death. And if you understand what sitting in rush hour traffic is like, then you understand what participating in a global economic system that has funneled more than 90% of the new wealth generated since 1980 up to its top few percent is like. Yes, folks, we are all caught inside the gears of this machine, the machine of hypermodernity. And if we are to escape with our lives and human dignity intact, if we are to turn the tools of the maker against twisted carnival house of super abundant distractions and weaponized financial trading algorithms, then we need to start imagining solutions that work not for the 99% or the 1%, but for all 100% of us. We need to start thinking about ourselves as players on Team Human. And that is exactly why I am so delighted to have Douglas Rushkoff as the guest for today's episode. Doug is a legitimate silverback media theorist and culture critic who has been coining vital terminology and introducing us to our new media landscape since the early 90s when he was working with Robert Anton Wilson and Timothy Leary to start tracing the contours and opportunities of our new digital surround. Doug is also one of the first people to recognize how the promise of the internet as an emancipatory technology was being co-opted by exploitative corporate forces and our new social currencies turned against us by what his 2001 documentary called The Merchants of Cool. 
the author of such wonderful and profound books as Programmer Be Programmed, Present Shock, and Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, Doug has established himself as one of the more vocal and articulate critics of our damnably convenient technocratic prison. But lately, and to my great relief, I've seen him turn to using his platform in support of the people and ideas that can offer us a path out of this labyrinth we've created. As usual, this is a very broad, far-reaching conversation. We take it a lot of different places, and we have the special extra treat this week of guest co-host Michael Phillip of Third Eye Drops joining us for this call because I joined him for his interview of Doug Rushkoff last year. I will post a link to that in the show notes. But first, I want to take a moment to thank all 69 of you who have rated and reviewed this show on iTunes. Thank you so much. We're now more reviews than episodes, which I think is a sort of miniature singularity. And thanks to your reviews, this show is being served to people who would never find it any other way. This is, in fact, a project for Team Human and not just my closest friends and Facebook associates. So if you have a minute and you want to help facilitate these conversations, hop on over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review. It means a huge deal to me and to everyone who would not have found this podcast otherwise. Also, I want to thank the five new Patreon supporters this week. Matt Payne, Sarah Voss, Mustafa Ansara, Darren Basile, and Andrew Stoker. God help me if I mispronounced your names. Thank you all so much for contributing to this and joining the small but quite privileged crew of supporters over at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, where I have tons of exclusive podcast episodes, extended uncut episodes, early release episodes, supplementary talks, panels, discussions, and live musical performances. And starting this week, my serialized coloring book, an interactive work of psychedelic futurism, something to occupy your hands while you're listening to this show, as if you weren't busy enough already. But I'll be putting out new pages routinely, henceforth, starting this week for The Coloring Book. The first 10 pages will go out to Patreon supporters at any level this Friday. And even if you have a negative bank account, there is still a ton of cool free stuff up on Patreon that I hope you will raid like a hungry velociraptor hunting eight-year-olds in the abandoned Jurassic Park facility kitchens. Lastly, as usual, I post links to cool new art and science news pretty much every day in the Facebook Future Fossils discussion group. It's become a rather lively forum, actually, and uh, the main reason that I look at Facebook anymore. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can always shout out to me directly at futurefossilspodcast at gmail.com. And that's that. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy this fantastic episode with Doug Rushkoff and Michael Phillip. Hello. <laughs> Morning. Hey, guys. Wow. Oh, there's two of you. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> the dynamic Michael duo is back again.
Oh, no. <laughs> I was thinking about that. I don't know if we actually said anything in that last conversation. I remember thinking back when it was over. It's like, did we, was anything said? Sometimes that happens, yeah. You get into that conversational flow state and just do that progression of thought to thought and so much is said and simultaneously nothing is said. I I know exactly what you're saying. I had a podcast exactly like that yesterday with Daniele Bellelli, who you might know, but he and I have been friends via podcasting for years now, so it's really easy to just kind of forget you're even oh yeah, this is live, you know, it's like, this isn't just a conversation, but sometimes those are great. Well, luckily, one, this isn't live, and two, I actually have some sort of prepared thoughts here for you, Doug. Cool. So thanks for joining Future Fossils. It's it's a long time in coming. I appreciate it. Excellent. I would love to start by asking you about Team Human, because I haven't, I'm sure you have spoken about this on other shows than your own but you know your earlier work is sort of characterized by this adversarial program or be programmed you know you you're you have to be literate or it's going to be used against you and that's a very us them kind of mentality and then you know present shock you actually introduced me to james p Carr's like finite and infinite games and this notion of like a win-win thing for everyone. And so I'm curious at what point or, or how you pivoted from seeing this as like media warfare to recognizing that we need a, a, a new strategy that involves everybody. I don't know. To me, they're sort of one and the same thing. You know, to be um, into life and joy and connection and peace and mutual support and that i mean in some ways makes me necessarily against pain and meanness and a bunch of other stuff at at the same time i mean in in team human the podcast and team human the the book that i'm just finishing now I, i stress how important it is to understand that the people on the other side are still people and then if you can understand the even worst cases the fear that they're operating from it becomes a lot easier to engage with them so you know like today i I, i'm appalled in some cases by the way progressives say respond or react to the trump people because they're people you know, and you understand where is it coming from? Okay, they've got some kind of a might makes right logic that you know deeply embedded in what they're thinking. They're thinking, well, white Europeans came to these places and beat the other cultures. Therefore, it's the best culture. Why should we promote the culture of you know uh, blacks or Native Americans if they lost? You know, so it's almost like a cultural eugenics or some confusion going on, but. It doesn't make them, they're still part of the team. They still, I used to say this back in the 80s. I used to say, in the first George Bush era, I used to say, look, if George Bush can't make it through the attractor at the end of time, then none of us make it at the end of time, right? It's not about, oh, we've all had the DMT experience, so we're going to wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, we call counterculture psychedelic people get to make it through, and all the evil stockbrokers don't. It's like no, we got to. This is this is a team sport. Now that's why I'm calling it Team Human. This is this is everybody. 
So I kind of always been there. At the same time, I've always been contrarian and kind of countercultural and, you know, highly critical of, you know, the people, people, certainly people in power who should know better, you know. Mm -hmm. Is it possible, though, to avoid that way of thinking in our culture, that sort of divided binary thinking? Because I feel like even if it's just sort of passive, we're at the very least coerced into constantly thinking that way because it's, you know, it's a point-based system. It's a, it's a dollar-based system where if you don't have the points, you're pretty much fucked. You, you could, you pretty much will die or you'll be a huge burden to society. And as long as we're in that situation, can we avoid that sort of tribal thinking? Can we have some sort of radical, empathetic transmutation where all of a sudden humanity usurps the po- the almighty points, the almighty dollars? Or, or do you think capitalism and this more sort of egalitarian system can coexist? I mean, they can coexist if we understand that capitalism is a game and not reality. You know, if we accept it for the symbol system that it is. And we have to change the mentality that's even that's even in, in, encoded in the way you speak about, you know, people becoming a burden to society. Who's more of a burden to society? You know, a person on welfare or a capitalist who's extracting 80% of the wealth of his community? He's the burden. You know, the mm-hmm. Apple's bank account in Europe is the burden, not, not, you know, you or me or the kid on the dole making beautiful graffiti while he's, you know, collecting $300 a month from his government. You know, so it's tricky. But yeah, I think they're I think they're compatible. It's just we've let the one dominate. It's like asking I mean it's kinda of like asking, well, are men and women compatible? It's like, yeah, they're compatible as long as the men stop like raping and molesting the women. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's is a good Western point. colonial expansionist capitalism compatible with a bottom-up circulatory, you know, velocity-optimized local economy? Yeah, if it's kept in check, if it's kept in balance. So you've got the colonial economy can make your friggin' iPhones, and the local economy can make your Swiss chard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So there's a uh, a seeming trend right now toward growing authenticity or like a moral virtue signaling in advertising and I'm I'm curious whether you see that as as a as a hopeful trend or or whether you see it as like yet another twist of some sort of pernicious manipulation cuz I mean you know the the ads lately some of them are just getting so like bare and and naked and frank and simple and honest and it's fascinating to me you know uh, and it's bad. you know there's two ways for that to go so uh, on the one hand i think it's good news if the entirety of brand is really uh, becomes the transparency of the, the environmental and labor practices that went into the creation of an object. So the Patagonia brand is a good example of one where the whole brand is about where are we sourcing this stuff? How are we polluting? How are we recycling? What land are we claiming back? And so their brand mythology is a nonfiction story. 
you know, that's allowing people to relax and expand their awareness about the entire life cycle of the product. You know, there's this other sort of the greenwashing kind where, oh, you know, we're going to use Martin Luther King's speech in our Ram Dodge Ram commercial, you know, (laughs) to somehow associate our vehicles with civil rights. I'm sure it started out as a sweet thing, you know. They were probably just thinking, oh, it's, you know, Black History Month, let's sponsor people hearing this. But then they just couldn't help saying, yeah, but if we do that, we got to make sure people associate it with the Ram. And it probably slowly slipped down from being a simple, you know, we're just going to play a speech and maybe put it at the end, brought to you by Ram, and just make it this thing. And it's like, you know, Apple tried to get, I mean, they got away with it better Here's Gandhi. Here's John Lennon. Here's an Apple computer. I don't know. But uh, so there's two ways to do it. But no, since since the 90s, I've been arguing that that branding can still stay alive if uh, advertising people and brand managers start to see themselves as people who can communicate the nonfiction story of the company. And if that story of the company leave something to be desired, then they become the catalyst for that institutional change. Mm. I don't know if it's going to work out that way, but. So I want to, I want to switch a little. This is a show that emphasizes the, uh, the time horizon as a concept, you know, and, and this movement out of, and it, it inspired in large part by your book, present shock and, you know, and this, tension that we feel in this time between you know high frequency trading algorithms and twitter timeline and all that and where we must place our attention on a you know a long now uh, and also a deep now and you know a sense of depth or uh, a quality in this moment that intersects uh, at an angle to the sort of rapidity of modern life the pace of it and I'm curious, you know, how you understand a team human in light of this, like, much deeper timeline or, like, the big story, you know? Well, when you reconnect with the big story, you also reconnect with the past, which is a lot easier to do than connecting with the future. And if you connect with the deep past, then you understand that, oh, you know, that human beings are a a complex, you know, that we are a a living social network. We're not individuals. And you start to see that, oh, individualism was invented around the Renaissance, you know, what we currently think of as the individual and self-styling and self-fashioning and all. And look at where, um, look at where that's brought us. So when I look at the, the larger timeline, what I see is, okay, here's this organism, this human collective organism that was sort of unconscious of its social nature. It was unconscious of itself as a group organism. It developed ego and individuality and selfishness and all of this stuff, just like a little baby does when it grows up. You know, it's like, oh, I'm not my mother. I'm my own being. But then you move into adolescence, which is what I'm thinking we're getting to now, and you realize, oh, but it would actually be fun to be connected with all these other people and to experience that union again. So we end up, if it all works out, we end up in the best of both worlds, where we have uh, both an awareness of our individuality, but the context of uh, social organism. The question is whether we can get there or whether 
capitalism and our social institutions emerged so in the name of individual freedom that now they're not going to let us reconnect with each other because it's so bad for the market for people to like each other. Mm. I think about uh, Terrence McKenna's old rap about how as we emerge into a sense of planetary identity, that this is what, how we end up with the attendant UFO mythologies and, and all of that, that we have to create a new other. And that kind of loops back to what we were just talking about a moment ago. Like, do you, do you feel as though this renegotiated self-other boundary sort of requires a new them, a new alien? Or do you think that, you know, like Richard Doyle at Penn State suggests that we're moving into a a kind of psychedelic reconfiguration of that boundary and a movement out of the binary and into a sense of like fractal non-linearity with it. It'd be nice. You know? <laughs> and to add on to that too, and to add on to that, I think the clearest example of that is that we have these shadow persona online or we can have multiple shadow personas online. So we have our physical analog meat body life where we have these social relationships and these networks and responsibilities and then we have something like facebook which is tied to that and requires you to be tied to that or you have to do things to get around their algorithm to make sure you're playing by that rule but then we have other communities with full anonymity where you can represent yourself however you choose and I'm kind of torn between whether I think we're going to come back together into one cohesive identity that is both technologically mediated and physically mediated, or if they're going to splinter further. Because, you know, the more ingrained these technologies get with our bodies, the more difficult it may be to misrepresent ourselves because there's just going to be too much metadata. But at the same time, there might be communities that are VR-based or AR-based or places that encourage you to represent yourself in different ways. So I think that feeds back into what you're saying, Michael G. Yeah, I mean, for me, I look kind of more at the way the embedded values of the technology force you to misrepresent yourself anyway. You know, so I'm represented in terms of what, how many followers I have on here, how much money I have on there, or what this. And it's like, no, none of them know me. None of them know me. And and in some ways, they distort me to myself. You know, so then if I'm doing well, oh, my book sold well. Um, therefore, I must be what, more connected to mommy or to love or to something or or like which books got me laid and which books didn't you know or something that would be a good question actually yeah, did you, you have that on your list michael yeah, <laughs> yeah really and uh but i mean the kinds of stuff i mean at least that's a real life organic social reinforcement compared <laughs> to books that get me whatever points in this gamified internet reality so what is the gamified internet reality incentivizing you look at Bitcoin or the blockchain, so what we're doing is incentivizing massive purchase of technology and consumption of electricity. Is that what we need to be incentivizing on a planet that's running out of energy and that has too much technological production and waste as it is? You know, maybe not, but yeah, I guess if, if, if the geeks want to take over the banking system and become the new bankers, then sure, let's... Uh, make those values the most important ones. 
are they bad? You see, now some geek who's a blockchain enthusiast will hear that and think, oh, Rush Cup doesn't like me. No, I love you. I love you. But I think that there's something wrong with the model you're using to help disrupt uh, capitalism. I think you're reifying the gold standard. And in the end, once all the Bitcoin is mined, it's going to be banks running the friggin' blockchain anyway. Second verse, same as the worst, a little bit louder and more polluting. This is something that Michael and I have talked about a lot, and it's that the narrative around cryptocurrency right now is extremely lacking and in a very infantile stage because it came into existence under the use case of being traded as value. So the whole conversation surrounding it right now is a conversation about value. It's like memes about Lambos and like all of this other really kind of trivial, vapid shit. But when you look at the parallels to life forms and evolution and fractals and counterculture and psychedelia, all that stuff is there and nobody's putting that voice into cryptocurrency right now. And Michael and I are actually part of a project that's like brainstorming how to do that, but it's still in its, you know, genesis stages. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are. And I get, you know, the emails and asked to join in as an advisor on this blockchain project or that. And I kind of, I kind of throw up my arms on all of them. Because I feel like there's this, I, I get it, there's this like, technology and it's kind of cool and if only they did this or only they did that, it could be turned towards good or something like that. And it's like, now, we've got to figure out a currency that's incentivizing something other than computer cycles. Or that rather than, than substituting for trust in a new way, that looks at how do we engender trust between people. And so, that's coming, just, that is coming. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I had uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger of the Neurohacker Collective on the show a couple episodes huh? back, and I, I asked him about Demirage, you know, and I said, you know, wh- wh- what do you think about this? I mean, it seems like it's obvious. I've been advocating for years that we move to a system that discourages hoarding and encourages yeah. that we keep the money in circulation, obviously. But he said, you know, was it, he, his critique I found kind of fascinating. He said, it's, it's moving from a, you know, a single sort of myopic vision to a new myopic vision. And that like Demirage has a place in an ecosystem of, cur- of like currencies and incentives, but that taken on its own, it would incentivize transactions and that we would just get this enormous like, transaction volume would become the new dystopia. And it's like, I hear something like that in the, you know, the Bitcoin mining critique that it's like, we've got to... It's not enough to just keep it moving around. We've got to move it around in a smart way. Well, central currency was was intentionally optimized for the discouragement of transactions because peasants transacting became wealthy. They became a middle class. So I think that things are tilted so far away from the, the transactional potency of currency. I think we are so far from the peril that might be inherent in a superfluid economy. <laughs> you know, it's so, it's like, okay, so what if we did get to the place where everybody cared about everybody else? How would we deal with the pain? How would we, it's like, 
you know, let's deal with the compassion issues. Let, you know, let's see. Let's wait until we get there. Right now, nobody's feeling anything. Right now, everybody thinks they're separate from everybody else. So, yeah, there's a possible extreme, um, but I'm not worried about getting there. Right now, we have people with skills and people with needs, and they can't do price discovery with one another because the only utility they have is a currency that's too expensive for them to, to get a hold of. Yeah, that's uh, that's yeah. But I'm all for an ecosystem of currencies. Go for it. Let's have currencies for the wealthy and currencies for the poor. You know, and that's fine. And then maybe you get rich, and then you stop using this one, and you start using that one. Or you want to have this currency is the one you squirrel stuff away, so you've got this gold-like stuff or this Bitcoin-like stuff that you use for your pyramid schemes, and that's great. Go, gazette, have fun. Get into that one early, and then sell the fuck out of it so you can get out before it crashes. Great, play that game. Go to Vegas. But what about just like, where do I get my oats? How do I pay my babysitter? You know, maybe that pyramid scheme stuff isn't the best tool for that job. Mm. I, I yeah, do wonder with, with if if you go to any exchange where you can see transactions occurring and you can see volume spikes, and you know, I am not an extraordinarily analytical person. Like I don't enjoy going through spreadsheets or looking, doing like technical analysis on cryptocurrencies too much, but it is fascinating to just see one person manipulate the market. And and we are in a time where that's very possible. Right. And the, the anonymity involved in that manipulation is absolute because it's encrypted. I mean, we're talking about the same encryption algorithms and hashing algorithms you use to secure anything. So unless those people want to be known or somebody does a lot of detective work, they're never going to be known. But I fantasize that one day we're going to hear just some wild, wild stories about manipulation because it's, it's just we've lost roughly $500 billion in the cryptocurrency market cap in like two months and that same $500 billion showed up in the market in like three weeks or something crazy. So the amount of money that's going in and out is just staggering right now. The amount of energy and attention that's being paid, that money coming out is it just as equal of an indicator of attention being paid as it is going in. So it's just really interesting from a standpoint of human attention and a standpoint of energy and I think it's more interesting to talk about the conversation in that way than in dollar value. That's just way more fascinating to me. Yeah, I just feel like, though, the, at the same time, the aspect of the blockchain that is most real at this point is the environmental destruction. You know, so when I look at that, I feel like, and maybe only because. I'm one of those people and maybe who's deluded in thinking, I believe that that human beings, industrial activity is impacting the sustainability of our ecosystem. I think we really could be involved in climate change, you know, CO2 levels going up. I kind of buy this narrative that 99.9999% of scientists agree with. And the smartest scientists I know have given up on the environment. They're just like, let's just have dinner. Let's just, this is it. That's the case. And it feels like every conversation about blockchain has to start and end with that. It's like, okay, while we're destroying the planet with this technology, isn't it an interesting model for this? It's like, 
you know, Second Life is interesting too. If Second Life were destroying the environment, you know, or killing the, or leading to suicides of its members, then that would be the story more than is it fun to go into the, you know, Coke Palace or whatever. So I want to try and take what both of you just said here and draw it towards a sort of larger contextual issue, which I feel You're is a beautiful synthesizer. Oh, like a Moog. Hollis uh, Kramer. So <laughs> <laughs> this this issue of the anonymous whale market manipulator. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Forgot about that part. This they're, they're there. Yeah. This oh, yeah. this they're thing. Um, you can see individual transactions for incredible amounts of money programmatically being made by a single individual, and it's it's just wild to watch how it affects. Well, because one percent so many of people own fifty percent of Bitcoin. I mean, right. yeah, it's nuts. So yeah. there's there's that, and. To go back even earlier, the issue of an anonymity, pseudonymity, and the sort of event horizon that we get beyond which, uh, I think Edward Snowden said in an interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson a couple of years ago, he thought that maybe the reason we don't detect these super intelligent alien civilizations is because they just encrypt all of their communication and it looks like radio, like it just looks like heat out there. So this thought of like as our technologies become more and more sophisticated that the horizon of our knowability of the world that we're inhabiting is actually shrinking. And it seems to me as though we're returning in some respects to a sense of a place in the cosmos where we're back to where we were like 30,000 years ago as far as our sense of where we belong in the food chain of our world. You know, that we're surrounded by these mysterious anonymous actors and these giant faceless corporations with their own sort of agency and will. And, and, I'm, and I'm curious... A what corporate role, Mount Olympus. Yeah, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm curious what, given your historical fascination with and, uh, you know, study of magic, how do you understand a sort of like canny postmodern magical sensibility taking root in this space in a way that's actually like, you know, useful to us. Well, I mean, it's all just sigil magic on a certain level. Only now you can express it through code rather than just uh, alchemy or social influence. I mean, it's not coincidental that the sort of the Russian bot stuff also was accelerating, you know, intentional sigil magic on little Pepe and, you know, some of our, some other of the icons that should be our heroes. It's a uh... Douglas, when you say sigil magic yeah. for people who like aren't familiar with that concept, how do you think of it? Really? It's just having an intention and then codifying it in a way that lets that intention spread really symbolically, almost more than actually. And then through that symbolic spread, or mental spread, it ends up kind of priming reality for its actual spread. So it could be as simple as you come up with a logo for your corporation that is using, sure, it's using every bit of mind control and mythological technology we have, but it's also just embodying the will of you and the other founders of this corporation. So then as you try to spread it, something happens. 
Or it could be as simple as, uh, you know, Shepard Fairey coming up with the Andre the Giant logo. Andre has a posse, which is a form of incantation. It's sigil magic, and you spread it all around. And it led to his kind of his obey movement, which then ended up kind of merging with the Obama movement and hope. And it was really interesting. So, you know, Obama's hope campaign with the Shepard Fairey poster was primed by Shepard Fairey's decade of Andre the Giant work. You kind of transferred which god goes in there. Now, with the with the internet, it's not just postering things around or getting people to recite your poetry or creating a little sign or, or a little image that ends up etched on the wrought iron fences of England, extending your, you know, tribal or, or your cultic message but it's actual. As far as the virtual is actual, I mean, the virtual is tied to our real economy now. The virtual is tied to our real security. It, virtual is tied to our actual well-being. So thanks to cyberspace, we have a place where all of that symbolic activity becomes real or at least as real as we're willing to make this stuff. Your FICO score is on there. This is the landscape that's defining our reality. So it turns programmers into potential magicians of unprecedented power. Mm-hmm. So looping that back to what you said a moment ago about how some of the smartest scientists you know have sort of given up on like saving our world, world as it is. You know, I think of Rice University professor Tim Morton and his idea of the hyper object. You know, he talked about global warming as a hyper object. He's an object-oriented philosopher. So he has this sense that these non-local distributed ideas or... Conceptual a- frameworks. Well, I mean, it's, it's, not a, it's not that it's a conceptual framework. It's that it is, in some sense, more real than we are because global warming is this thing that is constantly acting on us. It's exerting an, a distributed agency on all of us all the time. And so, like, it's in that sense that I think of us as sort of having been, there's a Copernican shift that seems to have happened here where we've become aware of these like corporations as sort of like uh, gods or these, these larger forces. Hey, you think it's retrieving some kind of a, a almost pre-civilization sensibility about human beings co-inhabiting this reality with these large entities. I mean, does and that wh- seem like a, a regression to you or does that seem like... It's a retrieval. So to the extent that it's positive, it could be a retrieval of, you know, the return of the mythic return, that we start seeing our own actions, not as so new or individual, but as, you know, reenactments of some higher forces. So just as in the ancients, everyone having sex understood their fertility as somehow just some small piece of Marduk and Astarte coming together and, you know, reaping the fertility of the, of the universe. If we believed in these larger entities, then we see ourselves as just reenacting something. The problem is that the entities that we imagined then versus the ones that we're encountering today, those ones were based in nature and fertility and growth and some, dare I say, sort of essential human and natural values, how ecosystems work and how sustainability and return and recycling of energy and all sort of those great aboriginal and indigenous concepts and how they use the soil and animals and 
you know, the regenerative, even the agricultural techniques of the time were regenerative rather than extractive. The gods that we are looking at today are subsets of capitalism. They're really more unintended consequences of people looking game the system than they are the sort of natural flowering of some higher power, higher agenda. So we're in a similar relationship to those things, but we don't want to be reenacting those things. We want to be, if anything, recognizing them and, and creating alternatives. Yeah, I was like thinking of praying to Monsanto for sterility. <laughs> right. Well, for example, right. Or for fertility in that case. I'm sure they do. They are praying. Oh, my God, my soil is gone. I have no topsoil. Bugs are coming. Maybe Monsanto has figured out just one more thing. Get me through one fucking more season, you know, before this is just sand. One dollar equals one prayer. That's the new paradigm. Prayers, dollars replace prayers. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that it seems like the ancients used to think in this much more exoteric type of paradigm where things come to you, visit you, pass through you rather than like, let's talk about, you know, genius is an easy example. Genius was a thing that would visit you, inhabit you, inspire you, and then you'd create something due to that visitation, not some internal perfect alignment of well-architectured neurons or something, right? Which is the way we tend to think of it now. But I think we believe we have this like hubris that we're beyond that, but we're absolutely not beyond that. It's just that, like you've described, the gods have changed. The external factors that we pray to or worry about or are fearful of have just taken on new forms. And I think we would be better off if we could acknowledge that because there's power in realizing what is in your control and what's outside of your control and if you feel like all of these factors are coalescing, that's diminishing your personal agency, I think it's really important to realize that and realize that that's like a trap. It's like a trap to disempowerment in a way. Yeah, Tindrick, what's the, I mean, you're kind of uh, articulating the serenity prayer, you know, from the 12 steps, you know, <laughs> God help me just know what I can, you know, what I can have the power to change and what I don't and the wisdom, you know, tell the difference or whatever. I wonder, though, I wonder if that's too binary at this point. In other words, you've got to realize it's awful, but it's that part of that long forever that you're making a difference in everything all the time anyway. You know, I guess you can only really be conscious or willful about that which you know, but your, I hate to call it right action, but your appropriate middle path behaviors impact the whole system not just the thing that you're thinking to impact. You know, and that's why it's so hard to do it, but you really just have to do the right thing in every circumstance. You, know, <laughs> you really do, as right as you can. And you kind of, and this is the thing, this is why I sort of do believe in God. You kind of know what's right all the time. You kind of know. And how do you know, really? You know, and it's because, you know, because there's a kind of a moral order of the universe. Sorry. They're kind of, <laughs> it, you know, it's why, you know, you know, it's kind of wrong to just run over that squirrel for the fun of it and right to stop your car 
and then probably write to walk to work instead of driving this vehicle at all. You just know, you know, or don't take that thing. You know, just don't take it. It's not yours. It's, it's that person's. You know, you go into someone's house, you don't take their stuff. Mm, Most mm-hmm, of us don't. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's wrong. It's just wrong. You know, it's going to make you feel bad. And it's going to just lead to more locks and keys on the world and more paranoia. And I, I mean, my God, we're each such a high leverage point. You know, and that, the bad side of it is that, oh my God, you mean everything I do matters? Yeah, but the good side of it is, yeah, but everything you do matters. You know, so you become, oh my God, you mean I probably alone, just taking better actions over the next 10 minutes could probably save the whole fucking planet, you know? Yeah. This is going in a really interesting direction, and I kind of want to, like, take it there, but Future Fossil is MG's show, so I don't want to, like, usurp the flow. So you, you, I want to I hear what you're thinking, Mike. Well, I mean, this show typically is predicated on the idea that we act differently if we act in light of the future's awareness of us historically. If we know that we're being received and interpreted and understood we're being watched that i think it's arthur c clark's last novel the light of other days talks about this that we find a way to look back through time through a little wormhole we can't travel back but we can look back and so from the moment that that technology is invented we're aware that the future is watching us and that alone is enough to change the way that we relate to each other and it's like i hear something about that in what you're saying but i also hear that you're saying that it doesn't necessarily have to come from a contemplation of our responsibility to someone else, that it it emerges spontaneously. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. You know, psychologically, they found that people relate to their own future selves the same way they relate to a stranger. Hmm. So the person that you're saving retirement money for is just some old guy. You know, <laughs> that asshole you know, it is, you know, it's like, that's the way it's like, what the fuck? Fuck him. So I don't really care so much. I mean, on some level, I don't care so much if that person is suffering in the cold because I want a new iPhone 10. So screw him. So it, the, the future is a tricky one. I've always been kind of down on futurists because of how manipulative futurists are. And I've always been suspicious of the future because I understand coming from the Judeo-Christian tradition, the way that we use the future and progress as, I mean, it's beautiful in a way. We want to make the world a better place, move towards social justice and all that. But it, it makes our understanding of the world much more linear than circular. And I think if we forget the circular, then we forget that all our garbage is going somewhere, that mm-hmm. all our things come back to us, that everything sort of reincarnates. You know, and that regenerative quality can really easily get lost if you employ a certain understanding of the, the future. You know, plus what most human beings, most companies, most organizations, when you talk to them about the future, they start thinking about the future. They think of the future as this fixed thing that they can now prepare for. How is it going to be so I know how to mm-hmm. prepare for it rather than, no, what future do you want to make? And your actions now are going to are going to determine that. And that's almost so hard to do. OK, I'm going to do these actions to get that and do these actions to get that. I mean, yeah, in a microcosm, it kind of makes sense. But just as there's that time travel problem, you can't go back in time without moving an ashtray and completely change everything in ways that you didn't realize. 
I don't think you can do that with the present either. I think all you can do the somatic and internal and spiritual and organismic and social cues that we get about are we enhancing and helping nature or not are immediate. You know, I think that they're sensory, not intellectual. Mm. Michael, does this still tie into what you were hoping to weave in there? Not, not exactly. I mean, I was going a more metaphysical direction because the the conversation was bleeding into some metaphysical territory but now now i'm thinking about something completely different which is how the future is used as a coercion technique and as like a promise of punishment or the promise of at least a very undesirable situation like if you don't do this if you don't prepare for that this consequence will be laid upon you. If you don't right. listen to the boss at work, this will happen. And of course, this takes you out of reality into some imagined future place and it's anxiety inducing. And, and it when dictates where we go. Yeah, and right. And now right. you sound a little bit like Trump, right? Climate change is a Chinese conspiracy designed to paralyze America and prevent us from just doing our great fucking thing. We'll figure it out when we get there. Shut the right right i I, do have an explicit rating you're welcome to say whatever you like (laughs) oh really (laughs) yeah okay yeah but you know what i mean i mean yeah i mean i used to do a talk i i I got invited to a south by southwest and they wanted me to talk about the future this was like 1996 or something way back when and i said something to the effect like my title of my talk i remember bruce sterling came to this one i said why all futurists suck (laughs) (laughs) And I was basically saying that, but, you know, especially in that sort of day, the heady days of early Wired magazine where they're saying, look, everything's changing. The tsunami's coming. You better hire some futurists, you know, to tell you where it's going or you're all going to die. And I was arguing that it's fine that all futurists are propagandists of a certain sort. So if I'm going to be a futurist, I'm going to propagandize the world of peace and love and, you know, egalitarian sensibility that we're moving into, not a long stock market boom of infinite wealth for venture capitalists. So J.F. Martel wrote this book, uh, Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, and he draws on a, you know, a number of other thinkers to make this case that there is art and then there's artifice, right? There's propaganda or pornography, you know, something that's it's got it's moralizing. It has it's meant to elicit a specific response. And then there's art, which is a symbolic Uh, or non-symbolic window into the transcendent. It causes an aesthetic arrest or a moment of pause, a reflection. It's not intended to do a particular thing to someone. And so, you know, it seems like, is, is there a way to talk about the future as an art form rather than as propagandic? Is there a way to point people towards a sort of inchoate transcendental potential without being a booster for some sort of rampant uncritical techno bonerist nonsense yeah but i don't know whether this is buddhist or anti-buddhist or something but i don't even like the construction of i'm here and i want to get there or i'm stupid and i want to get enlightened or you know all these people who become buddhist because they think that there's something at the end of the thing i mean if most people who become Buddhists understood what the Buddhist path was going to do, how that was going to be, they wouldn't have signed up for it at all, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh, no, this isn't what I thought, and this is as good as it gets, and maybe it only gets worse. Um, fuck, man. 
because there's no there is no enlightenment i mean not to i'm sorry to if that's a spoiler there's no there there it's a piggyback off of that and to to really highlight that a friend of mine went to thailand recently and he went to a buddhist temple and I've had this thought before, but this image just really drove it home. And it was an image of three older monks that he, you know, just like took a picture of that were meditating. They looked hollow. He's like, these dudes barely moved for like two hours. They almost didn't look alive. And if that's what enlightenment is, we do not want that in this culture. We yeah. are not. In, we are not interested no in, in I mean, incinerating our ego to that yeah. level at I all. Criticize those guys because they might be doing something super important, like holding the fucking fabric of the reality. Sure, right. So don't don't fuck with them. I mean, they're smart. But all I'm saying is that there's this sense of even among spiritual people, there's this sense that of a very cause and effect before and after binary understanding of spirituality. It doesn't work like that. It's all now. It's all circular. It's all there. You've got the tool. You don't have to do anything. You know, and that's just like so hard for people to wrap their heads around. If there's no there, there's only here, then what? Where am I going? Nowhere. You know, it's like, oh, okay. That makes it easier. And then how do you reconcile that with the great Western Judeo-Christian tradition of, I want to make the world better. I want to reduce the pain and suffering that's all around me. Well, then go to it. You know, then go to it. And that's the marriage of the two elements that you were asking about at the beginning. Yeah, I'm going to go and use my progress and my engineering and everything to try to reduce pain and suffering. And at the same time, I'm going to understand that I don't matter, you know, and that, that this is it and everything is what it is. In a world where we're beset on all sides by this like virtual reality of planetary tragedy, talk about fractal noia and this just everything hitting us from all sides at once, it seems like non-attachment is really the only thing that we can do and stay sane. Non-attachment with compassion, which is really hard. I mean, it's all four elements or whatever have to be in- incorporated and go on parallel tracks or you move from neighborhood to neighborhood you know it's really hard i mean and we have examples you know we've got we've got the gandhis and the mother Teresas and the kings and the everyone you know all the different combinations of those sort of elemental understandings you know leaning far on this side and far on that one but i think you can do it in microcosm i think you can do it without a I mean, I've amassed a platform of influence, I guess, because I wrote these books and stuff. I, I don't know that that has magnified or amplified the positive impact of what I'm doing at all. You know, it could be that in my personal interactions, I'm undoing way more of the good than I'm doing in a book that gets read by 100,000 people. I mean, I just really don't, I don't know, but... And maybe it's because I'm old or something, but I'm believing more and more it's in the micro-momentary interactions we have that we actually impact the human organism. On that note, I mean, we're coming up on an hour here, and so it, yeah, it makes, sense to, makes sense to tie a bow on this. But it seems like what you're saying is tuned to your recent statement of interest in moving away from 
books that Team Human is like maybe your last book and that you want to be doing more live events and theatrical stuff and stuff on stage. Like I saw that our friend Eric Davis, your friend Eric Davis is joining you for one of these live events here soon, which is really exciting and cool. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear you talk about making space for this face-to-face, real-time human stuff in your life. Well, I, I mean, it's interesting to see. I, I wasn't even thinking of it that it's more fun. Although, yeah, from a personal perspective, yeah, I've written 20 books, and that means 20 years locked away sitting and writing by myself, which is fun in a way, but really lonely and horrible and desperate. I mean, my God, it's like 20 years in prison. I mean, except, you know, nicer chairs, but I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, psychically, it's alone. So there is that. But for me, it's more. I've said a lot. I've had the stage for a long time. I've made four television documentaries and written 20 books. I've demanded the attention of the cultural organism for a whole lot. And I've ended up with this platform, this ability to generate attention. So the best thing I can do with that is offer it to others, is use it to highlight other people's ideas and other people's stories. So if I did 50 years this way and do the next 50 years that way, then I'm also demonstrating that it's not about me. It never was about me. It was always about, you know, my interactions with these people. And then I'm just articulating them in books or documentaries or whatever. So bring them and just shut the fuck up for a few decades. (laughs) For the people who want, it's like if that's the product, you know, if it's like some micro Taylor Swift thing and people want some Rushkoff music, you know, so fine, I'll open up each episode with a 10-minute monologue. Here's what I'm thinking about something. Take it or leave it. Now let's get to the real thing, which is some other person. So it's paying my dues. That's beautiful. And that's a beautiful note to end it on, Doug. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Cool. Well, thank you for what you do. You can, you fix this thing, okay? You fix this. <laughs> <laughs> You're scaring me, man. You're, I, yeah. I hear a pre-echo of what I'll be telling. The next one. The next one. So on. Someday. And so, ah. so on. Yeah. So I don't know. It's been long enough since we spoke that this might not be super clear. So Michael hosts his own show. I host my own show. But we just happen to do it as a three-way both times. Well, we should do like a Team Human third eye drop. You know what I mean? Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on Future Fossils. So stick around, and have a most excellent eon.